from the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Tori Bruno. His social media presence is almost as large as the rockets he launches. He's the CEO of United Launch Alliance, the rocket giant responsible for Delta and Atlas launches. Recently, ULA launched NASA's Parker Solar Probe on a mission to touch the sun. And if you followed any coverage, you probably saw a lot of Tory in his cowboy hard hat. I met up with Tory at a recent stop in Cape Canaveral, but before our conversation, I had to ask him about the hard hat. Oh, so that's my cowboy-shaped hard hat. Where did that come from? So the staff found it for me because um, when I'm not at work, when I'm not dressed like this, I am in a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. Um, I have horses out in the countryside in Colorado where I live. So when they saw that, they said, that's what Tori's going to like. And they were right. (laughs) ULA has sent more than a dozen missions to Mars. And early next year, it will lift Boeing's commercial crew capsule, the Starliner, into orbit. Tori and I sat down to talk the Atlas's legacy, the commercial crew missions, and ULA's next rocket, the Vulcan. Well, before we talk about rockets, I, I want to talk a little bit about something that's kind of been dominating the news lately, but something that you've been talking about for a while, and that's the moon. Um, and you've had this idea to establish a cislunar economy. Can you kind of explain what that is and and where is the appetite for something like that? Sure. So it's really a journey is the way to think of it. This is something that will evolve over time. The end state is the inspiring vision where the tremendous natural resources that reside in that space between here and the moon that are far in excess of anything we can produce here on Earth that will fundamentally change life here, that's the end state. And together with that, the ability to construct vast structures in space to create the infrastructure that will support that economy and eventually to have large orbiting solar power generation plants in orbit placing ubiquitous energy anywhere on the surface of the earth at very very low cost something that will really change life here however you don't start at the end state so we start initially with activities in earth orbit like specialty manufacturing Uh, For example, materials like ultra-pure fiber optics, the additive manufacturing of human tissue that can only be done in microgravity, space tourism even, and then finally prospecting of these near-Earth objects with these tremendous natural resources, the development of propellant that can be sourced in space, and eventually, over time, building this infrastructure and economy where thousands of men and women are living and working in space. Is this a pipe dream, or, I mean, is there a need for this? Is this something that's that's going to happen in the next five, ten years? This is going to evolve over about the next three decades. And, yeah, there absolutely is a need for it. We do have a shortage of natural resources that are accessible here on Earth, while yet just sitting there a week away, I mean, just right there, are resources in really mind-boggling, mind-boggling proportions. Let's talk rockets, Tori. ULA is synonymous with reliability. You have the Atlas V, the Delta II. Why do you think this company has been so successful at launching rockets? Well, really because of the dedication to the mission. It's all about the culture. So we have great rockets. They're well-designed. They've been flown 
many times, so the kinks have been worked out, but that's really not the secret sauce. The secret sauce is the attention to detail, the dedication to your mission space, and the culture that puts reliability and mission success in front of all other considerations. And you talked about the most important mission uh, earlier in your keynote speech there. Can you kind of bring us up to speed? What's the most important mission for you? For us, it's always the very next one. Because we talk about 130, we count them, but really, it's 130 one at a time. They're all different. They all have their unique characteristics. They all have a unique opportunity to not go as planned. And we customize, actually, every mission we do. Every orbit is designed specifically for that customer. That's something that's a little bit different than other players in the launch industry, and yet the standard mission for us is, in fact, a unique mission. Now, one of those important missions coming up is the NASA's commercial crew missions where you're working with Boeing to launch the Starliner. Can you talk about some of the things that are going into preparing for the mission? We're just a few months away from that. What did ULA do to prepare for that? What's left to do? Um, and, and what are you most excited for uh, for this mission? So, you know, the obvious thing is building the rocket, but there's so much more that goes into a mission like that. First off, the Centaur is flying a two-engine configuration. That hasn't been done in many, many years. So we had to resurrect that design. We had to make it uh, uh, up-to-date and current for the existing configuration. And the Centaur is the upper stage, right? Yes, the Centaur is the upper stage. Thank you. And we also had to go through a very lengthy and detailed process arm-in-arm arm with NASA to walk through every single system on the Atlas rocket, on its Centaur upper stage, its booster, how the capsule will interface with those systems to be safe and reliable to get to a confidence level that this is going to be completely safe for humans to sit on top of what is a giant quantity of propellant with just a little bit of machine wrapped around it. What goes through your mind, as was mentioned um during the Q&A of your talk, this will be the first mission that ULA is launching humans. What goes through your mind? Are there additional safety things that, that you have to go through? Do you approach this mission any different? What, what, what's going on? Yeah, so we have great processes, and we're not going to break those because we know how to use them, and they've, they've run 130 times now successfully. But what we add to that is the additional safety reviews on top of it that are unique to human spaceflight, and then we drive the cultural piece of that. We make sure everybody is aware that they are flying people. They are flying sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. They, you know, this is the real thing, and to be just that much more careful. Now, we spoke with uh, Chris Ferguson, who's going to be one of those astronauts um, on one of the first missions there. H have you met any of the commercial crew astronauts? Oh, yes, we've met our crew, and we're very, very proud of them. We think they are amazing astronauts, and we're, we're pretty excited to be able to, you know, be their ride to space. Are there any last-minute things that ULA needs to accomplish um, at the launch pad, at the, at the launch facilities? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the rocket is still in the factory. It's still being finished off and will conduct its final testing. Uh, the crew access tower, white room and arm, are all in place, but there'll be more testing to make sure that they're still ready to go. And so all of that will progress right up until we integrate the vehicle. And where will you be for that launch? I'll be right there. <laughs> Do you like to be at every launch, Tori Bruno? I wish I could be at every launch. We fly so many times, I can't get to all of them. But I'm either at the launch site or usually in our Denver Operations Center on console there. 
and you know, it is the most exciting part of what we do. I have done probably close to 400 launches across my career now, and I'll tell you that every one is just like the first one. Now, you started as a mechanical engineer working on missiles. What has it been, the, the progression of Tori Bruno to now CEO of ULA, what, what's it, what has it been like? Well, it's been quite a journey. Um, I didn't actually have any interest in management. I just wanted to be a rocket scientist, and that's what I did for about the first 10 years of my career. I sort of reluctantly agreed to, well, I guess I'll be a manager. Um, I, I felt there was a need. I thought I could make a little bit bigger you know, uh, difference in our, in our programs as doing that, and I could help other people in their careers. And then from that, I had a very traditional sort of aerospace progression where I did systems engineering and program management of increasing complexity. But uh, I would say the thing that was most valuable to me is I generally cared so much about the mission that I always wanted to work on the most difficult problems that we had. So if there was something that was really struggling or going wrong and I thought I could help, I would volunteer and sort of jump in. So when everybody else was running away from sort of the burning building, you know, when programs were really in trouble, I would try and run in there and help make things right. And I think that that helped me because you get so much more learning compressed into a much shorter span of time when you work on something that, you know, that's in trouble. What do you look for in the next generation of rocket scientists? Um, if someone wants to come work for you that, that might be in middle or high school now, what advice uh, do you have to give to them? Well, I look for passion. You know, we're going to have smart engineers, smart rocket builders, smart launch operations people, but what I really want are people who care deeply about the missions we serve and who love space and are really passionate about rocketry. And are you seeing that there are more and more people applying for jobs in your industry, applying at ULA, as we start to see more and more launches from the coast and, and more and more media coverage of these launches? Do you have a long list of, of people trying to work for you? We do, actually. We have a very, very long list. And I think we're seeing almost a renaissance in public awareness of space and the space industry where suddenly it's exciting again and that's attracting some really great talent. Looking forward, ULA celebrated the, the final launch of Delta II. We're making way for your next vehicle, uh, Vulcan. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the Vulcan rocket and, and where the development is today? Sure. So we have crossed the important milestone that we refer to in our business as a critical design review. And that gates the fabrication of hardware that we'd, we would use for testing and qualification. So we passed that several months ago. We retooled our factory, and now we are building full-scale Vulcan hardware for test purposes so that we can be ready to fly in very short order. So we're barreling along, we're making excellent progress, and we have encountered really no showstoppers in the development program so far. What development is happening locally here at, at your launch facility at Cape Canaveral? Yeah, so we're configuring the pad at Slick 41 to be able to fly both Atlas and Vulcan, which is something very unique to have a pad that can fly two different rockets of very different sizes. We're also building a dedicated uh, launch platform, MLP we call it, mobile launch platform, that will be dedicated for Vulcan so that Atlas still has a pad because that tends to be a bottleneck as we analyzed our operations. So big construction, lots of steel, you know, everything in space launch vehicles is on a gigantic scale, really hard to appreciate 
even when you see the photos of it, even when you visit the pad here in Florida, you know, it's kind of a flat tabletop landscape and there aren't a lot of things around, so you don't appreciate this is a 30-story building. So all of that massive construction is underway right now. And will that first launch be from Cape Canaveral? Have you made that decision yet? It'll, yes, it will be from Cape Canaveral. And when are you targeting? So we're targeting 2020. Now, recently you announced your partnership with Blue Origin um, to use their BE4 engines. Um, can you talk about that decision um, and the next steps um, to getting that integrated into the rocket? Sure. So we conducted a competitive assessment based on all the things you might imagine, you know, technology readiness, cost, schedule, investment, uh, all of that, and we arrived at BE4 as being the right answer for our first stage booster. That'll bring in the novel propellant of methane for a large-scale space launch vehicle, an engine of this size. We also selected Aerojet Rocketdyne for the upper stage and placed a very large order of RL-10s, which will also be upgraded and modernized as Vulcan you know, moves along. And what is the testing and integration process going forward of, of the BE-4 engines and, and also the Aerojet engines? When you build a, a rocket engine, it's very complex. When, could probably argue that uh, it's more complicated than the rest of the booster itself put together. And so those are done as standalone items, very, being very careful about the interfaces between them. Because, for example, one of the things that uh, is very important in making a booster and a rocket engine work together are all the mechanical loads and acoustics that come off of that engine. Those are actually the governing load cases for that booster, not necessarily the aerodynamics. And so there's a very tight integration, but the physical development integration of the rocket is done separately, of the rocket engine is done separately as an engine, and then finally brought together with its booster really in the factory, and then, uh, you know, tested for the first time at the launch pad. So the analysis and the care and the testing is very, very important because you don't really get a lot of do-overs in this business. Now, there will be one test flight of, of the Vulcan at this point. Is that what's what's scheduled or, or will they be multiple yeah. ones? So it's really in a way none because we have to fly twice in order to certify for national security space missions for government missions and we intend for those first two flights to have paying commercial customers. Now as you think about Vulcan development how much impact did competitors have on that? Thinking to SpaceX that's launching the Falcon 9 now and Blue Origin that's coming online soon. How did that kind of shape the direction of Vulcan, if it did at all? Yeah, sure. So I'd look at it this way. So when you have a competitive environment, you're able to justify investments in technology to make your product more competitive. So that's a good thing. That's why competition is healthy for the industry and why it's good for customers. But probably the biggest driver on the design of Vulcan is the mission space that we intend the rocket to fly. And where do you see ULA fitting into the launch industry in the 2020s? Will you still maintain that, that powerhouse status that you have? Yeah, we absolutely will. Uh, ULA will continue to be the rocket of choice for missions that are most critical for even commercial customers that have business cases that really rely on not only getting to space, but getting to space on time, and then potentially getting to their destination orbits quicker. I think there's a subtlety in our industry that a lot of people don't appreciate, which is the nature of some of the orbits. You just don't go where it's dark and hard to breathe. Okay, there's a big spectrum of places you go in space. Many of them are very, very difficult to get to, 
and are really require advanced upper stage technology. It doesn't matter how big your rocket is, if you don't have these very unique capabilities in the upper stage, you just can't get there. ULA is the best at that market space today, and we're gonna stay the best as we go forward, continuing to make the investments required to do that. So you will see us flying the highest, most sensitive missions that are available for a broad spectrum of customers and sort of continuing to lead the industry. Now you see your competitors like SpaceX and Blue Origin landing those boosters and with a focus on reusability. Um, is that an issue with ULA that there isn't that, that, that first stage reusability or are your strengths elsewhere? Well really we're also interested in reusability but we're taking a little bit different approach. So there's sort of three ways to think about reusability. Propulsive flyback, which you see SpaceX doing, and which Blue intends to do. There's the glide back technique, and then of course there's component recovery. We've elected to go with component recovery because that's the lowest economic threshold. First, it's the least technically challenging to achieve, and it has the uh, smallest investment and the quickest return so that you can very rapidly prove this is gonna work, begin saving your customers money, and then move on from that. Propulsive recovery is difficult because of the environment you have to fly back through. You have to hypersonically re-enter, you have to fly into your own plume, and the thermal environments on the back of the rocket are very, very challenging. And I think we have seen that in uh, SpaceX's Block 4, where they flew over two dozen rockets. Almost half of them could only be flown once, the balance could only be flown twice. Now I have no doubt that they'll learn from all of that and in their next block, block five, they're going to do much better. We wanted to start somewhere where we could start saving our customers money a lot faster and make sure that the model would stick and not be abandoned as being too economically challenged. The name of this program is Are We There Yet? Um, we focus on when it comes to putting humans on Mars are we there yet? And I think you are probably the most qualified person to answer that question because you've put so many robots <laughs> on the surface of Mars. When do you think we'll actually have human missions to Mars and will ULA be a part of it? Well, I think we'll have human missions to Mars certainly in our lifetimes. It's not that far away. Um, it is a difficult mission. As you point out, we've, we've gone there 18 times. Uh, we've pretty much put every U.S. mission to Mars there. It's not an easy place to go. It's very, very far away. The transit times are very large. So the challenges that people will face are much more substantial than what we face robotically. You know, when we send a robotic mission to Mars, it's really just the orbital mechanics that are the big challenge. You only have certain windows of the year when you can go. The accuracy to get there is astounding. It's roughly equivalent to hitting a golf ball in Paris and having, you know, hit a hole in one in Pebble Beach out in California. So that's a non-trivial problem. But when we bring people into it, now we have very long exposures into environments that are 10 times more intense than the radiation we get here in low Earth orbit. And that is a big consideration. Then we need to land them on the planet where the radiation is nearly as intense. It's not shielded very much and then get them back home safe again, because we don't want to just, you know, this can't be a one-way trip. So these are big, big challenges, and I'll say part of the motivation behind the people who want to do propulsive reuse is they're looking to an architecture that supports that, vice just going to space as we do here nearer to home. But yes, that is absolutely coming. We would love to be a part of it. 
Um, my money is that SLS will be the first platform, the first rocket that sends people out to Mars, and we'll all enjoy seeing how this turns out. We've been speaking with Tori Bruno, the CEO of United Launch Alliance. Tori, thank you so much. Thank you. It was my, it was my pleasure. Huge thanks to Tori and his amazing communications team for setting that up, and the National Space Club Florida for hosting us. Give Tori a follow on Twitter. He's at Tori Bruno. If you got questions or ideas for upcoming guests, let me know. Email me at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or hit me up on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. And while you're at it, be sure to rate and review this podcast so more people can explore exploration with us. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. And until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.